0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for June 2014, volume 52, number six. My name is David Verzakli, I'm DTB's deputy editor.
1: And I'm James Cave, I'm editor in chief of the DTB.
0: This month, we start with an editorial looking at drug safety updates. Uh, these are monthly publications produced by the Medicines Healthcare products regulatory agency, um, and they provide a, a, a roundup or of key safety issues for healthcare professionals, uh, high-quality publication, uh, summaries of, of the issues that are of relevance to um, medicines and medicine safety. This month, we look at a couple of items that they've published, which has led to perhaps some questions in the minds of, of healthcare professionals as what they should do with the information, James, do you want to expand a little bit on the, on the two in particular that we, that we pick up?
1: A little while ago, there were safety concerns raised about the use of codeine in children under the age of 12. And when uh, an agency, particularly one as important as the MHRA, suggests that this is uh, something that we should stop doing, everyone sits up and, and listens. And But the issue we discovered was that actually regionally, how people have actually responded to that has been quite variable. And I suppose what we we're just raising is that there's one thing to raise a safety concern, but if it's not contextualized and some idea of its priority given, then the risk is that actually it, you get confusion in healthcare delivery because of that.
0: And so what we, what we identified with this particular case was that people had implemented it in different ways um, across the country. And I guess the uncertainty was that were the other options any safer um, than the one that they moved from?
1: Absolutely. I mean, for example, some some areas have switched from using codeine to tramadol, for example, whereas, whereas we're, we're not entirely sure whether the safety of tramadol in children is something that's been widely looked at and whether it actually really is any safer is unknown
0: so there's something about the publication of of information which is important and crucial that healthcare professionals do something with it but it's it's quite what they do that's the issue and and the second example that we picked up was the advice around brand prescribing of anti-epileptics
1: Yes, this has been something obviously which uh, has been an issue for many years with bioavailability of different brands. Um, and it's particularly important with drugs that have a very narrow therapeutic index of which the anti-epileptics are a classic point. But the issue we have here, of course, is that unless there is some coordination locally, that there's a risk that actually different organizations use different brands and that creates incredible Problems, particularly for secondary care hospitals, if if they are admitting patients using multiple brands of anti-epileptics, it can be very difficult for their pharmacy to to stock all those brands in any way that's that's safe or effective.
0: So again, a concern that the advice, so though important to to flag up the issue that they raise, was actually quite difficult to implement in in clinical practice because of this issue of coordination between different sectors of healthcare uh, and and different individual organisations, none of whom kind of contractually uh, operate as a single unit.
1: Exactly, yes.
0: So overall, I mean, obviously difficult for the agency. They've got to put out information that is timely and relevant. Do we have any suggestions what, what should happen?
1: This is not meant to be a, a criticism of, of the MHRA as such, but I think we just wonder whether they're is some place to add some sort of prioritised plan that's robust as part of that. So just some, just some thought given to the implications of this. For clinicians on the front line, would, would be a welcome addition. I think is what we really want
0: to try and say. And perhaps even you know, road testing with with some jobbing healthcare professionals is the advice implementable in, in practice before formulating a you know a, an issued piece of guidance. Precisely. Okay, thank you very much. The first main article this month looks at Relvar Ellipta, a new combination inhaler that's recently been launched in the UK. Relvar is a combination of fluticasone furate and Volantrol, a new combination to this country. And the device itself, the Ellipta device, again is a a new product for for the UK. And the Relva Ellipta is, is licensed for uh, patients with CAPD, uh, the actual indication is an FEV1 less than 70% with a history of exacerbations despite other other treatments. So we look at various aspects of its its use, particularly its efficacy, uh, and look at several trials. And James, what did you make of the outcomes?
1: Um, well, I think the first thing to point out, this is this is a new drug by GSK. Um, there are other big combination inhaler they've used for COPD for years, of course, is serotide. And that patent expired last year in 2013. Um, So the cynics amongst you might say, oh, hello, here's a a new combination with a different steroid and a different long-acting beta agonist. Um, And uh, we've got the usual um, trials looking at safety for about a year and also looking at efficacy over about 12 weeks. And one of the studies they do is they compare this new uh, combination with the old serotide combination. And lo and behold, there probably isn't a lot of difference between the two. So yes, this does improve your um, FEV1, but didn't seem to have any particular advantage over the old um, fluticasone salmeterol combination
0: so some evidence that it's obviously better than than placebo in terms of lung function some evidence that compared with fluticasone on its own it does something uh, and these are, these are just in terms of lung function what about terms of exacerbations
1: so um, with regard to exacerbations uh, this new combination is certainly better than the long-acting beta agonist on its own, we have research for that, but then we'd expect that because we know that inhaled corticosteroids reduce the incidence of exacerbations. Uh, But we don't have any placebo-controlled trials of this new combination. The one trial they did where they compared this new combination against the old serotide fluticasone salmeterol, uh, there was no difference in exacerbations between those two.
0: Okay, so something on efficacy that we we know safety wise judging from the trials and the product information, it's going to be similar have a similar safety profile to other long acting um, beta agonists and steroid combinations, so what you'd expect to see with other ones you will see with this combination
1: exactly I mean, I think one caveat you might we might just want to mark up there with. With particularly inhaled corticosteroids, we have some new Cochrane reviews now, which have demonstrated that there is an increased risk in uh, bone mineral density loss and associated fractures in inhaled corticosteroids. And nice guidance does remember does suggest we don't use inhaled corticosteroids unless you have severe. Uh, COPD, or you are still having exacerbations when the other treatments have been tried if you have moderate or mild COPD. So, although this drug is licensed for moderate or severe COPD, NICE would be suggesting that uh, we only use inhaled corticosteroids in those with severe COPD.
0: Absolutely. From a cost point of view, it's cheaper than other inhaled combinations at the moment.
1: That's right, and and it's um, also cheaper than the beclometasone long-acting beta agonist combination, uh, Fostair, which I know some areas um, of the country GPs have been under pressure to use because of its cost. Uh, There's a slight caveat about that, given that once again the Cochrane have just recently published a review which seemed to show that beclometasone was pretty ineffective in the management of COPD symptoms or exacerbations. So I think this is, this the management of COPD is an area that is currently, with all these new drugs on the market, uh, an area that is chopping and changing quite a bit at the moment.
0: And from a patient perspective, three issues struck me. One is, this is a once daily uh, product, whereas most of the other treatments we use are twice daily. So whether that has an advantage hasn't been shown, but you can argue either way, if you if you've got a drug that is only needed to be taken once a day, that potential benefit for patients. But on the other hand, if you forget to take your dose, you're going to be a long time before, perhaps taking your, your follow-up dose. So there are, I guess, pros and cons. I think
1: that's there. right. I think when when one looks at um, the whole issue of concordance around frequency of of uh, having to take drugs between one and. Once and twice a day you can it's always difficult to know whether there's an advantage or not, certainly when you'd go into more frequent than twice a day, you can certainly show some advantage on less frequent dose regimes. but I think the once or twice a day regime is going to be an interesting one because I think some people actually you know I think that they get therapeutic benefit from taking their inhaler more frequently they may feel they're losing out with only having it once
0: and then the other couple of issues which are interesting are one is the name and certainly some commentators have picked up on the fact that relvar sounds a bit like reliever and may cause a bit of confusion and also the color of the inhaler which again people have suggested might might again be confused with uh, with with reliever devices
1: Yes, and I, I, I don't quite understand. I, I can only imagine that that's just uh, uh, an oversight, frankly, because um, you're not going to want people to be using this drug as a reliever drug and perhaps perhaps increase the instance of side effects from it. So I suspect that's something which is, is right to, to note, but we'll have to see whether it really in practice becomes an issue.
0: Okay, thank you very much. And our second main article this month looks at the management of Alzheimer's disease, particularly around the prescribing of drugs. Nothing particularly new in terms of the drugs themselves, but we thought with the increasing move to prescribing or ongoing prescribing in primary care, we ought to do a, a reminder to healthcare professionals of the key issues. Issues that cropped up for you, James?
1: Yes, I mean, I, I, you know, I thought this was a really useful article for GPs. Um, we've covered... All the drugs in in quality of depth, the anticholinesterrate inhibitors and the n methyl d aspartate antagonist. we've reminded people of where the nice guidance fits into all of it, their modes of action. We've got some really good summaries of the evidence for their clinical efficacy in the article, reminding us you know of of the fact that you know the the efficacy is modest to say the least. We've got the dosing regimes in there, and there's also some very useful tables. We've got a very nice table on the outcome measures used in Alzheimer's disease, so you can remind yourself um, how we classify mild, moderate, and severe Alzheimer's or dementia. So I think it's a really nicely rounded article that just, puts everything into place for us as GPs particularly as I think you know as you say we are now increasingly seeing the prescribing of this medication moving out into primary care.
0: And finally a couple of items for select one that caught my eye was the guidance or changing guidance on the use of drugs that affect the renin-angiotensin system and emerging evidence and guidance from Europe around not combining drugs from different classes so we have ACE inhibitors Uh, angiotensin 2 receptor antagonists and renin inhibitors, the the guidance appears to be that we shouldn't be using these drugs in combination, Um, perhaps a small number of people with heart failure who may benefit from uh, a combination, but otherwise not to use drugs from this class together. Is that something that you see in general practice?
1: Uh, there, was, there was that little vogue. I think there was a couple of um, research articles published several years ago which raised the possibility that actually the, two, the, the, the combination of an ACE and an ARB together might be very effective. And uh, there was a little bit of a fashion developing of using them both together. Um, and then there were some well-documented concerns raised about this, particularly around acute kidney injury. And I think this is just uh, Stamps. The, the issue very clearly the European Medicines Agency is saying look, this is, a, this is a dangerous mix, it's not something we should be doing except as you say in very particular circumstances and as a general rule if I was a GP I'm, you know, it's a nice little audit you could do you could go away, just do a search have I got any patients t- taking these combinations, if I have you know, do I still want that to be maintained because the chances are it may not be in the best interest of the patients
0: Thank you and finally, zolpidem. Um, we've known about hypnotics and their hangover effects for some time, but now there's some strengthened warnings appearing uh, for zolpidem in terms of uh, its carrier effect into the ne- into the next day. Again, is this something that you see much of?
1: Well, I think I think this is a, a very timely reminder because I think. There are a lot of GPs who sort of, you know, we've been well warned off using temazepam and the benzodiazepines for sleeping pills. And we've always looked upon these Z drugs as perhaps being, you know, a sort of a milder or less um, addictive option. And I think this is a very timely reminder that actually there's no such thing as a safe drug. And these uh, particular drugs do seem to have this difficult hangover effect because actually the issue seems to be that They don't make you feel hungover, but you will have impaired judgment the following day as a result of having taken them, even at doses which in the past we would have thought are not particularly
0: high. So some clear advice about not increasing the recommended dose, limiting the course, and actually alerting patients to the concerns that actually they may impair their function um, more than was realized before. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you very much. To read these and any articles, please visit our website dtb.bmj.com.